how to not give energy to negative thoughts, how to feel at peace during uncertainty, how to balance optimism and realism as a leader, and the two relationship secrets that have allowed him and his wife to thrive over the past 31 years of marriage and so much more coming right up. This is episode number three, zero, seven, with accomplished high-altitude climber, professional speaker, and best-selling author, Jim Davidson. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Nick Carrier's Best You Podcast. Before hopping into the episode, I want to tell you about my brand new daily, weekly, and monthly planner and video course called The Best Journey Planner. In this course, you're going to learn how to slightly improve in all seven pockets of your life, health, relationships, career, financial, personal, spiritual, and other. And you're going to learn how to spike in one of them at all times. This is the path to get closer to the best version of yourself. You'll learn how to define success in the areas every single month and then boil that down to what it looks like on a weekly and daily basis. Just go to go.nickcarrier.com slash the best journey planner to learn more. Again, go.nickcarrier.com slash the best journey planner. But for now, let's go ahead and dive into the episode. I'm super excited today to bring back the one and only Jim Davidson. I had Jim on a couple of years ago to talk about his first book called The Ledge, but today we're talking about his newest book, The Next Everest, Surviving the Mountain's Deadliest Day and Finding the Resilience to Climb Again. Jim is an accomplished high-altitude climber, geologist, and a professional speaker about resilience. Before diving into the interview, be sure you're subscribing to Nick Carrier's Best You Podcast on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever it is that you listen or watch. And be sure you share the episode with a friend while you're listening as well. All you got to do is send them to nickcarrier.com slash podcast. Also, be sure you're following me on Instagram at carrier underscore best you and follow Jim at resilience with climber Jim. But without further ado, here's to getting closer and closer to your best you with the one and only Jim Davidson. All right, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to Nick Carrier's Best You Podcast. I'm super stoked today to have back the one and only Jim Davidson. Jim, I just want to start off by saying thanks so much for spending the time again with me today. Oh, my pleasure. It's great to be back with you and your listeners. Yeah, no, no doubt. So I had you the first time on to talk about your first book, The Ledge, which was absolutely awesome. And now we're going to talk a little bit more specifically about the next Everest, surviving the mountain's deadliest day and finding the resilience to climb again. And as I was kind of letting you know beforehand, I finished it about a week ago and it's, it's such an awesome story. And it's almost kind of like, to me, it was almost split into like three different chunks, kind of the 20... 15, uh, that kind of the gap in between and then, and then 2017 going, going back to hiking. It was just, it was unbelievable. The kind of the, the emotional roller coaster that you're taking on as a reader almost, um, through your experience. But so essentially to kind of give a super brief recap in 2015, you were climbing Everest and I briefly mentioned the ledge, um, in the intro there, 23 years earlier, you were climbing Mount Rainier when tragedy struck and you were hiking, hiking with your partner, Mike Price, and you guys fell through a crevasse. And long story short, he, he passed away. You ended up surviving. And as you talk about when, when hiking Mount Everest, there's always the opportunity or the uncertainty or the potential of a crevasse popping up that you don't see and, and having the potential to fall through. And there's kind of a lot of uncertainties that have the ability to to pop up out of kind of out of nowhere. So what gives you kind of the courage and, and the ability to 
keep moving and keep doing things like this when there is so much uncertainty involved? Well, you're right. I mean, there's lots of uncertainties in mountaineering. The weather, your skills, your partner, uh, crevasses, cracks on the glacier, uh, avalanches. There's all those uncertainties. But you know what? If I stayed home and stayed on the couch to be safe, there'd be other uncertainties. My health, uh, my longevity, and my, is my brain turning to mush by watching TV 18 hours a day? Those are risk and uncertainties as well. So I decide to try and instead take on the sort of the active role of going out there and choosing what I want to try and go after accept those uncertainties and try and train myself and my team as best I can because it's like if I'm going to face uncertainty I might as well do it doing something that gives me pleasure and the opportunity to grow rather than sitting on the couch and wondering how long I'm going to live and what health concern might strike me Mm, I, I think that I think that's great what do you say then to people who what what about the people who are unwilling to go into something challenging and kind of their reasoning is because there's so much uncertainty. You know, it could be starting a new job, right? Right. Cause there's like, there is risk in starting a new job, but there's risk in staying at the old job. Maybe you don't learn new things. Maybe you don't grow as a professional. Like how do you, what's kind of the conversation look like to somebody when the excuse or the thing that is holding them back is the level of uncertainty of a challenge or of something new? Yeah, I think we all recognize those uncertainties, whether we take the job or not, whether we climb the mountain or not. And so instead, I try and find that that spark in them and say, well, what is it that would really get you excited? You know, like if we could put those uncertainties aside, what would what would really get you excited? Maybe it's uh, learning how to play guitar. Uh, maybe it's running a marathon or getting their degree. If that's what gets you excited, see, the reward is so big and the potential for growth is so big towards that exciting thing that now suddenly the uncertainties are worth taking on. So I think you have to look inside yourself and maybe help others find that spark of passion that says, you know what? I know there's uncertainty. I know it's going to take time and money and effort, but darn it, I want that thing. And that's different for everybody. I mean, I'm motivated by mountains, but I'm not motivated by music per se. You could not make me stay in a room for 40 hours a week and practice guitar because I'm just not driven by that. I'd probably wander off after about three hours and not come back. But somebody else, they'd stay there 60 hours a week because they're so motivated. So find that thing that gets you pumped up, that, that draws you towards it, and that'll make taking on the uncertainties and the risk manageable and valuable. Yeah, and I think sometimes we have to sometimes sit down and evaluate and realize that it is worth our time. Like sometimes we don't know it would be worth our time going into an uncertainty, I feel like, unless we take a step back and and realize the potential positive possibilities that could come from different things. Absolutely. And it, the beauty of picking something that comes from passion is if you reach that objective, like say I'm into mountaineering and I want to climb Everest. If I'd gotten into mountaineering and spent 30 years being a mountaineer and on summit day, I had a stomach ache and I couldn't summit Everest. You know what? I spent the last 30 years doing what I wanted, turning myself into a better climber, learning along the way, hanging out with similar-minded people who are going to lift me up and make me better. Hopefully, I can help them. And so even though I didn't summit, I still got almost all the rewards. And so if you know, conversely, if I don't want to be a musician, if you made me stay in a room for 30 years and practice guitar and I didn't make it to Carnegie Hall, I might be really bummed out. I'm like, oh, man, I spent 30 years doing the wrong thing and I didn't get the golden prize at the end. But by picking what drives you from passion, you're going to get all everything you want along the way. And maybe there's a cherry on top of your Sunday at the end that Carnegie Hall or the Summit of Everest awaits you. Yeah. And I think that you said something that you touched on a little bit in your book and something that I have heard and thought about before in regards to like set a goal that is going to require you to become somebody by achieving it. 
So, you know, you like set a goal to achieve a certain amount of money, not because you want to achieve a certain amount of money necessarily, but because you're going to have to learn so much. You're going to have to experience so much. You're going to have to, you know, go through a lot of challenge in order to able to achieve that goal. But, you know, at the end of the day, like if there are certain things that are out of your control that right at the end stop you from being able to achieve that ultimate thing or you fall just a little bit short, you still became the person along the way and along the journey. Absolutely. You've met great people. You've been inspired. Hopefully you've uplifted and inspired some other people yourself along the way. And, uh, you know, I think the goal also needs to be big enough to make you nervous. So yeah. let's say you're a walker and you can walk three miles. If you say, I want to see if I can walk 3.1 miles. Well, that's nice to have a goal, but I don't think that's really going to improve you a whole lot. Maybe instead you should say, I wonder if I can walk 10 miles or, or 20 or maybe even run a marathon. And if it makes you really scared and nervous, now you're on to something because your body and mind and spirit know, I, I want to do that thing. And I, I think I can do that thing, but I'm not really sure. Exactly. That's what's going to make you do more and become more than you've ever done before. Yeah, no doubt. And I'm not going to go too much into this personal story, but just real quick, I just actually kind of went through a, a personal goal that I set for myself. I wanted to decrease my one mile run time from five minutes and five seconds to four minutes and 45 seconds. And I did 10 weeks of very specific training for that. And on race day, I ran 446 and not 445. And, you know, I, I fell a, a second short of the goal, which obviously I would have loved to get down to, but ultimately... I wasn't super, super upset and super bummed because I still became the person that I wanted to become and I learned the things that I wanted to learn and I wanted to, and I interacted with the people and, and had so much growth through it that the 440, coming up a second short didn't really affect how I reevaluated how the, the whole thing went. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree completely because you, you learned all that stuff, you did all that work, and now your, your threshold is that much higher. So next right. year, if you take five seconds off that goal, you'll probably beat it because you've advanced so much on the fronts of mental and physical and your belief system that who knows what the next goal might be. So that's fantastic. Yeah. No doubt. No doubt. We'll appreciate it. Um, one of the, the, the things that I feel like a lot of people holds maybe a lot of people back is they think about the negative possibilities that could come from doing something challenging rather than the positive, positive possibilities. And so, you know, for you, there's a lot of risk involved, obviously, in climbing Mount Everest. You know, you, you think about what if I never see my family again? When you're hiking, you think, what if I fall and all these things? And you talk about in your book how you have to try to not give too much energy and attention to to all those negative possibilities and keep your sights more focused on the positive and, and keeping moving up rather than looking behind you. So how do you how do you kind of tactically do that? How do you not give space to those negative thoughts and negative possibilities? Well, as I shared in my book, The Next Everest, I learned it a lot working with my dad. He had an industrial yeah. painting business along with my uncles. And we did crazy jobs like climbing huge ladders to up church steeples and climbing electrical towers and, you know, sandblasting cranes and crazy things like that. And sometimes when I would kind of stall out, I was a teenager, I'd go like, ah, I'm kind of afraid to go up this ladder, but I don't want to tell my dad. But, you know, the look in my eyes, I'm sure told him how afraid I was. And he would just say little things to encourage me along. And the one I shared in the book was I was scared to climb this triple ladder that sticks up seven five feet up against this church steeple. And, and he said, focus on the climb, not the drop. And that was really key for me. And I realized when I was climbing Everest, you know, literally 40 years later, I realized that 
That means you're aware of the drop, the downsides, the negative things that could happen, but you don't stare at them the whole time. Instead, you focus on how you climb. You climb a ladder by looking at the rungs, not the space between the rungs, not the area outside the rungs, not the ground 70 feet below. You focus on the rungs. And it's like when you ride a bike. If you're riding down the sidewalk, you look towards the open space. Or if I think football players say run for daylight is another way, right? There's people and things and dangers all around you. But when you're on the sidewalk, you don't stare at the tree because you'll probably hit the tree. You're aware of the tree, and then you just focus on riding safely down the sidewalk. And so it doesn't deny the existence of the risk. It recognizes them, but it focuses on the solution to get you past those dangers to where you want to go. Yeah, I like that a lot. And I think that kind of takes me a little bit into where... I want to go next in regard to where, where did I write it down here? So you talked about during the first climb when the earthquakes were happening and, and things of that nature, how you want to be positive or it was probably during both like 15 and 17. You talk about the balance of staying positive versus the, again, kind of the potential negative things that can happen or, um, the, 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 the concern, that's what it was. The, the kind of the, the balance of positivity and showing concern for the, dif- the difficulty of the challenge. Um, you know, and that's what you kind of talk a little, a little bit about in exchanging messages with your family and exchanging messages with some of your friends is like, I want to be positive, but not overly positive where I'm deceiving them, but I don't want to show too much concern to make them scared. So how do you kind of f- find the, the balance in your own head of positivity versus showing legitimate concern? Yeah, great question. I mean, I've thought about that a lot because I've been an expedition leader taking college students on expeditions around the world. I've been a team member following an expedition leader like I was on uh, 2015 on Everest and 2017 on Everest. And I think what it boils down to is this. You need to be optimistic and realistic at the same time. And so that by being optimistic, you can be positive. Hey, I think we can get through this. The weather's going to clear at some point, but also realistic. It's scary during the earthquake. It's scary during the avalanches. We don't know how we're going to get off Mount Everest after the deadliest day ever and the route has been destroyed. So it's optimistic and realistic at the same time. It's not all just rah, 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 because if you, during the earthquake, if our leader had said, everything's fine, what are you nervous about? Everything's wonderful. This is going to be a great day. I might have thought she was not in touch with reality. I might have questioned her judgment and not wanted to follow her. Instead, she was realistic but optimistic. She was like, I know it's scary, but we got a really good team, and we're gonna, we made it through the first avalanche. We're more likely to survive the second one. I thought, well, she's, she's true. We've got a few things working for us here. So by being realistic and optimistic at the same time, it sets a pattern that we're not going to hide from the dangers. We're not going to deny the problems and the uncertainties, but we are going to figure that we can solve this because we have smart team members, dedicated team members. We're going to figure this problem out. Yeah, and I think it really comes down to when you're both optimistic and realistic, it's discussing the actual facts that are going on because that's what allows the people who are around you, who are seeing your optimism and real and, and realism actually believe you because sometimes if someone is just overly optimistic and the situation is should you shouldn't just be overly optimistic then they're not going to believe you and they're like all right this guy's just full of crap he's just an an optimist and and i think this is really practical to so many different people because one of the things that i think a lot about is in in sports it's like if they're if they're on this if a team is on the sideline like say a football game and, and they're way behind then a leader needs to kind of express both those things to their teammates right like 
you guys, look, I, I believe we can do this. I believe we can come back. We've done, we've done it before in the past. We've practiced like this during practice. It's going to be super tough. It's going to be super tough. We're going to have to make sure that we at least cut the lead down to 10 points by the end of the third quarter, that sort of thing. I think it comes down to laying out almost the facts to give the other people on your team around you the true belief that you know what you're talking about when you're both optimistic and realistic. I agree. The leader has to be honest with the team and with themselves yeah. about what's going on. If you're just all rah-rah, they might think, doesn't this guy know, it, you know, we're behind 30 points? Doesn't this lady know that we just had the biggest earthquake in, in 81 years in Nepal and avalanches are raining down? Uh, you might question their judgment. But by being transparent and clear and honest, they go, okay, well, the leader seems to have a good judgment on this, but they make a good point. If we can get through this thing, imagine what we can get through later. Um, and we do have a heck of a good team here and good communication skills and good climbing skills. So it's pointing out the things in their favor. And like you say, even if you say, you know, we may not catch these guys, but man, if we can, imagine if we can beat this other team in the fourth quarter, we can do anything, you know? So it's, it's, it's kind of like getting the most out of the experience, even if you don't beat the other team, even if you don't make the summit, uh, it's about getting the most out of the experience you can to build you up for the next opportunity, the next challenge down the road. Yeah. And you know, when, when you're, hiking you've you've got a a lot of people that you're communicating with over your journey and all of us on a daily basis have other teams that we're working with relationships that we have and and tons of people that we're communicating with at at, at all times and you talked about transparency what is maybe the biggest lesson that you learned in communication through all of your ventures and your journeys and your hikes and stuff I think the biggest lesson I learned about communication is you have to care so much about the team's safety and success that you're willing to be an open book. Like if mm-hmm. you and I go running, I mean, you're running speed, you know, five minute miles. My goodness, I, I, I can barely do, my best is like twice that speed, right? If you said, Jim, we're going we're gonna to run this race and we're going to run five and a half minute miles, I'd be like, Nick, I, I can't do that. I can't do that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you down later if I lie to you, if we're doing some kind of relay race. I say, Nick, if you expect me to run five minute miles, that's not going to happen. If you, we can somehow work it out that my nine minute mile pace can combine with yours and we can make this work, that's fine. But I've got to care so much about our success as a running team or in the mountains Uh, you know, our safety as well, that you're just absolutely transparent. That shows that you care about your partners and the outcome, even just to to admit your weaknesses right up front. And then the team can kind of, you know, calibrate. It's like, okay, maybe Nick's going to carry more weight and he can run seven minutes, uh, you know, seven minute miles with the weight. Maybe Jim can run faster, something like that, so that we can work as a team. But I've got to be clear with myself and clear with you so that we can have our best chance of success together. Yeah, and I don't know if if I'm... If I had this thought simply because you used the running analogy and I talked about running before, but the first thing that you said, or the first thing I thought about when you when you just said that is when I'm coaching fitness classes and people are running on the treadmill, I can't give them a unrealistic goal of like, you need to be running at this speed right now, or you need to be able to up your speed now or and things like that when it's just not viable whatsoever. They're going to lose trust in me. They're going to lose faith in me. So I think there is... something to that, to caring for their well-being, caring for their safety, and being realistic about what you think the other person is capable of when you're communicating with them. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, if we were running a time mile on the treadmill and I'm running nine-minute miles, if you say, Jim, I want you to run a five-minute mile next week, 
I might dismiss you. I'd say, he doesn't know yeah. me. He doesn't know, understand where I'm coming from. I'm 58 years old. I've never been a fast runner. I'm not going to, it's not, magic's not going to happen next week. But instead, if you recognize my strengths and weaknesses and say something like, Jim, you know, I, you're doing a great job, but I, I think you can do more. And we let's both talk about the things you've done in the past, what you're capable of. Let's work on a plan to get you faster. I'd be like, okay, there's a guy that he's empathetic towards me, but he sees, in fact, he sees something more in me than I do. I wonder what it is he sees. Mm. He's a qualified trainer. He's a great runner. Uh, maybe maybe I should just follow this guy's advice and I can become something more. That's going to be exciting to me and I'm going to want to be part of your team. So, you know, by being realistic but optimistic, that can be can spark me, really, to re- try and believe more of myself and then follow you, hopefully, to a better place. Yeah, for sure. I think I think it's a big trust builder with whoever it is that you're communicating with. I think that was that was key. So one of the things that is kind of unique a little bit with your goal was that you, there's so much that's out of your control when it comes to hiking, when it comes to the weather and everything like that. For me and my one mile goal, again, just, just to stay on that analogy, it's most things were kind of in my control. It was like, I can, I can run on the treadmill. I can run on the track. I can run outside. I can make sure I schedule out the days that it's not going to be bad weather and, and run then. And I kind of knew that if I put in the appropriate work, then you know, hopefully I was going to achieve my goal or I'm pretty darn close to achieving it. But you can work for years and years and years for achieving your goal and then something completely out of your control, like earthquakes, can stop you from being able to achieve that. So when you work so hard and then something uncontrollable prevents you from maybe fulfilling that ultimate goal, how do you handle that? How do you handle the uncontrollable? Well, I think part of it is what we talked about before, which is realizing that what you're learning along the way, whether you tick that box at the end of finishing the marathon or reaching the summit of the mountain, that's not so important. All the things you learned along the way. And I also think that when you tackle a big goal, playing at Carnegie Hall, uh, running a huge business, climbing Mount Everest, you need a broad base of experience. And to me, that meant learning literally dozens of skills, rock climbing skills, weather prediction, avalanche avoidance, Mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. First aid, rescue skills, being a good team member, being a good leader when the time comes. By building all those up on other expeditions and other climbs, that when something unexpected happens, like when we were on 2015, we we knew we had a lot of unexpected to try and climb Everest, but suddenly there's an earthquake, 7.8 magnitude, that stopped our climb right in its tracks. I was able to look back at past experiences when I was in tough spots, like uh, as you described in the book, The Ledge, when I was down inside that crevasse with my partner, my partner Mike, um, when I was on a rescue on Denali that I described in this book, The Next Everest, we were going for the summit and got totally stopped because we got involved in rescuing somebody else from another party. But all those things where things went off track taught me something that I can apply here. So the idea is you're slowly expanding your comfort range. And by the time I got to Everest with 33 years of experience in the mountains beneath my belt, although I didn't anticipate the earthquake and I didn't have the answer, I had been in other unusual and difficult circumstances before. And I thought, well, this is kind of like the Denali rescue where we had to do this. And it's kind of like the crevasse story where we had to do that. So by gluing pieces of experience together, even though an earthquake was not on my radar or anyone else's, we could kind of look back on our prior experiences and pull from it what we needed to deal with this challenge right here uh, as it confronted us. Confidence that you're going to control, you're, you're going to be able to control what you can. And, and hopefully that's enough based off of all your past experiences. That's cool. That's cool. One of the things that I almost found fascinating or seems like it would be almost frustrating climbing Mount Everest is how much work you have to do to acclimate yourself 
for the actual <laughs> for the actual climb, right? Like, because the trip itself, I forget exactly how long it is, but it's a, 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 I feel like at least a month because you got to do you got to get to base camp, then you got to go to camp one, like back down, camp two, back down, camp three, back down, and instead of just being able to, like, I feel like it when you're at camp three, you're just like, oh, I'm so close, I just want to go all the way. So, kind of what I'm getting at is, I want you to talk about or talk to the importance of almost, because I kind of see these as stacking small wins on top of each other and kind of gaining confidence that you have the ability to make it all the way when you finally go for that final attempt. And, and, you know, to go back to the mile thing, you know, I I would run 800 meter runs, 1200 meter runs before actually going for that full, that full 1600 meter to kind of stack small wins to build up my confidence before that final attempt. So kind of talk about the importance of that of stacking the small wins before you actually go for the final attempt, before you actually go for the goal achievement itself. No, your insight is, is dead on, which is people think, oh, you just go to the base of Mount Everest and if you're really strong, you can get it done fast. My trip was 66 days. Of those 66 days, I was probably only climbing 20 or 25 of them. The summit push was from bottom to the top was, was really five day period going out, four days of climbing. And the summit push on the final night was like about eight hours. So I literally spent three decades getting myself ready mentally and physically, a year of super hard training at, at age you know, 54, and, and then 66 days on the mountain just to be ready for that last eight hour push to the summit. And part of the reason we need to go up and down the mountain, like you said, is the air gets thinner and thinner the higher we go. So I don't care if you could take the, the fittest Olympian in the world in any sport, put them at the base of Mount Everest and say, climb it. They cannot climb it in one push period. Their body's not ready. They haven't grown enough red blood cells. So like you described, we have to go up and down the mountain for weeks, weeks and weeks and weeks, four weeks, six weeks, seven weeks of going up and down to learn the route, to make our body get stressed under lack, lack of oxygen, to grow more red blood cells. And those extra red blood cells will help us on the next trip. And you can see that this, we call it acclimatization, or when we go up and down the mountain, we call it rotations. And we do three or four of these rotations, but each time we go up, we're a little bit faster and it's a little bit easier. And so by the time you've done your fourth rotation as you're heading for the summit, our times are down by 40%, 50% of what they were that first trip. So it's also a psychological boost, which is, wow, six weeks ago, it was so hard to get to camp one. Now I cruised past camp one in like four hours and didn't even really feel the need for a break wow, I guess I really am ready. So you're boosting your mental resilience and your confidence as well. Uh, And that's necessary because on this final summit push, that last night, I think it was day 60 or 61 for me, um, on that last night, you are at the very limit of human capability and there's no more gear that we can carry. There's no more things we can eat or drink. In fact, your body really can't eat or drink at that high altitude. We didn't even get any sleep before our summit push. So it's all internal reserves. It's all confidence. It's all teamwork. That's what gets you to the summit. And so you're almost sort of toughening yourself up for that big, hard summit push ahead. So all those rounds and all that stacking is not fun and easy, but it builds you up. And that's what's critical to when you get to the point where it's not even physical anymore. It's pure mental. Can I stay awake for 36 hours and do 24 hours of exercise in that time period? Because that's what I had to do on that last summit day. I was literally on my feet for 36 hours and doing exercise like 24 or 27 of them, which was mind boggling to me. But at that point, I was, I was ready because of everything we put in. We're going to take a brief pause in the interview really quickly because if you're somebody who is looking to achieve a fitness goal or maybe you lack motivation to get into the gym, you lack some structure in your in your weekly 
routine or maybe you've been wanting to get back into the fitness game and get back to maybe your weight loss goal or whatever goal it is and you're not really quite sure how. If that sounds like you, my 10-week program is for you because I help everybody set a very specific goal. Then we create a very specific strategy of the two or the three things that we need to do every single week that we believe are going to make us successful with our overall goal. And that'll help you execute and I'll help you hold you accountable every single week. So you do the things that you kind of know you should be doing, but you're, you're not quite doing them right now. And that's what I've done with hundreds of people over the past 365 days, over the past a little over a year. And I want you to make sure that you are part of it as well. And enough for me, I want you to hear from the people who have done it in the past, what they've got out of it and, and why they did it in the first place. So here you go. I cannot say enough good things about Nick's 10-week program. I have always been somebody who has worked out but never really had a fitness goal. If anything, I really wanted to achieve. It was more so just to stay in shape. And Nick does a great job of helping you not only define the goal but also realize what steps you need to take to get there. Tomorrow, as of my weigh-in week nine, I hit my goal of losing 25 pounds in 10 weeks. Just the whole methodology of the program with it being one big goal, followed by some smaller goals to help me reach that big goal and then the weekly commitments to help me reach those smaller goals. During these times, it's helped strengthen my mental health and strengthen my focus and really made sure to hold me accountable to my goals. I'm so happy that I was able to hit the goal and uh, so much so that I decided to do another 10 weeks with Nick. I would recommend it to anybody, no matter what your goals are, if it's weight loss, if it's running a shorter mile, if it's anything you would like to achieve, I think that this program gives you the tools to set yourself up for success. But one of the biggest benefits for me, and the biggest takeaway I had was one I wasn't necessarily set out to improve upon, and that was building more self-confidence and really instilling self-accountability. The program was great. Um, I'm doing it again a second time to continue my weight loss, and just can't recommend it enough. So again, guys, if you lack motivation, if you lack structure, if you want to get back into your fitness game, but you're not really sure how, then I want you to make sure you go to nickcarrier.com slash 10-week programs. Again, nickcarrier.com slash 10-week programs to learn more. For now, let's get back to the interview. Yeah, and you know, I asked the question in regards to the mental confidence and the mental belief in yourself, and, and obviously that is a huge, huge component of it, as you just kind of stressed at the end, but... There is legitimately a human capability principle to that as well. Like you said, you can't just put anybody, at the, who, the fittest person in the world, at the base camp, and they would not be able to get there simply because their body has not been acclimated to it. They wouldn't; their red blood cells would not be prepared for that. And that's just a, that's like a human growth or a personal growth principle where, like, you can't go from A to Z immediately because your your body won't be ready your 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 knowledge is not there yet your skills are not there yet there yet your experience is not there yet and that's kind of one of the things that has kept me patient in my own personal growth journey and my own business growth journey because it's like I know if I went A to Z right now and if I had if I made a million dollars tomorrow I wouldn't have built up the systems the processes the skills the experience the knowledge to be able to sustain that like it would, it would, I would, I would, it would crumble probably, right? Because I wouldn't have, I wouldn't know how to handle it. Um, and I feel like that, you know, a lot of people see that when people win the lottery, they they'll they'll blow it all away because they haven't put in put in the reps and the they don't have the the legitimate knowledge and, and skills to be able to sustain that level 
that they're at. So I really feel like there's a human capability principle there that we have to be the person who has the ability to, to achieve that overall goal. Absolutely. I mean, even on, even on the physical side, you talked about stacking earlier, and I talked about that in my book, The Next Everest, that I got really good shape for 2015 when I went to go climb the mountain. Then the earthquake happened and it stopped, stopped it short. But I came home and I asked myself, what were my weaknesses? What do I have to do better so the next time I go back, when I'm going to be two years older, that I can handle it? And so I did all the training I'd done before, but more intensely, but I added other components. In my training, I did stacking days where I realized maybe at home I'll, I'll have a big climb coming up, a 12 or 16 hour climb. Well, I'll tend to take the day off before that big climb and then probably the one after that to rest. And I go, wait a minute, that's not how the mountain works. We have three, four, five days in a row of tough work. I have to put that into my training. So I did stacking days where I'd do a moderate day, a hard day, another hard day, and another moderate day to teach my body to respond when it was tired. That increased my chances of success, but also my chances of safety, which is when I'm coming down from the summit push on day six or day seven, and I'm completely depleted, can I keep going? I mean, that's a critical safety factor. And a measure of that is that, um, you know, I, I lost the most weight I'd ever, I was really lean for myself at age 54. But when I went to the mountain, while I was on the mountain in 2017, I lost 22 pounds. Uh, and when I came home, did some more uh, uh, fat tests, and I'd lost two pounds of fat and 20 pounds of muscle because there's just not enough food and enough protein up there. I lost 20 pounds of muscle in six weeks. Wow. And so I kind of knew that was going to happen from other expeditions that I'd done. So I would practice that at home doing what I called deprivation days, which is mm -hmm. I'd pick the coldest nights in the winter and I would roll out of bed at two in the morning of the coldest hour of the coldest nights. And I would drink no water, no food and go to my local peak that I knew well for safety margins. I didn't go wandering off a new place and I knew I could crawl back down if I had to. And I would climb the peak in the dark in the coldest time, no food, no water. And that taught me that I can get up in the middle of the night and a little bit deprived already and go put in six hours of hard exercise with literally no sustenance. And that gave me confidence on summit night that although I wish I had more food and more water, we don't, but I've been through this before. So I just going to go without it. And that really boosts your confidence as well. Wow. That's insane. I don't think you said this in the book, do you, but do you, did you have like a specific fitness coach or anything that was kind of giving programming or helping you out there or were you just kind of base, basing off of your past experience? I drew from all those sources. Um, for 2015, I had a trainer that I work with here at my, my main workout facility where I've been going for 29 years, the Rain Tree Athletic Club. And I also studied some great books, training for the new alpinism. Uh, but I also had my own program because I'd been, you know, doing this for, you know, 33, 34 years. So I kind of combined the best elements of those. But I recognized what I didn't know. And so I, I studied physiology really hard and I got, you know, um, uh, lactate threshold tests and all that stuff and had that inform my training. So it was kind of a blend of all of those. But if you haven't been through a lot of those prior expeditions, I would definitely recommend working with a, a really good trainer because it's not only as you know very well, it's not only getting stronger, it's also nutrition, it's recovery, it's rest, because you don't want to arrive at the mountain uh, exhausted. You don't want to ride at the, arrive at the start line of that mile or marathon completely worn out with an injury because that's not going to work well. So it's balancing all those, and it takes a long time to learn that about yourself. So I say work with a coach until you know that well about yourself. Yeah, for sure. And I'm just I'm just curious if you experienced this at all, because I know I've experienced it in the past with fitness goals and a couple of people that I've interviewed have experienced this as well as sometimes if maybe you don't have a coach or you don't have anybody necessarily monitoring your training, sometimes ambitious people, people who work really hard will 
think they need to do more than they necessarily kind of maybe actually do. And they, they might push themselves too hard to the point of injury, to the point of excess fatigue and, and that sort of thing. Did you ever have that kind of mental battle or discussion with yourself of, am I pushing myself too hard? And then maybe I need to actually hold myself back a little bit. Or, or did you ever have that kind of conversation with yourself? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I had some good climbing partners I've been climbing with for 20 years, and they know me well from being in the mountains together, and we've trained together. So they kind of acted as an outside monitor for me. Um, you know, they, they could sort of comment about my speed or how I even looked that day. You know, do my eyes look good and bright and cheery? Yeah. Or am I all, you know, almost hung over with exhaustion from yesterday's workout? So they acted as a reality check on me. And, I, and I'm, a, I'm a numbers guy, too. I'm a geologist by training. So I get big spreadsheets of my training stuff. And I look back at my old training logs as well to see how I was doing. Um, and even though I was older, I was actually doing some standard training runs and doing some winter 14,000 footers. I was doing about 10 or 15% faster than I had done in prior years, which I took as a good sign. But also I started monitoring days when I was fatigued. So yeah, you've got to really watch out that for fatigue and injury prevention. And that's, that's hard for gung-ho people that want to perform more. We think more is better. Yes, uh, but recovery is necessary too. So uh, kind of a combination through my own records and my training partners uh, somebody holding you back a little bit to make sure that you don't hurt yourself is a key part of being ready for race day for summit day. Yeah, no doubt. Cause I, I definitely have found that if you don't have somebody monitoring, monitoring you to a certain extent and you're not super clear on what the appropriate limits are, sometimes you can, you can overly over push yourself if you're overly ambitious. But one of the next things that I, I found super fascinating and, and really relatable to people is, you know, after you, I mean, the entire time you were climbing, you were probably pretty damn uncomfortable. But after you climbed and, and, and summited, you had essentially achieved the goal, but you still got to get back down, right? And there's a lot of possible, there's still possibilities for slip ups and stuff on the way back down, obviously. And so one of the things that you talked about was how you're like, okay, I got to stay focused just because you got there doesn't mean you can you can let up quite yet. You have to stay focused. And I think all of us experience that on a, on a daily basis, whether we're working out and maybe we're 45 minutes into the workout and we have another five, 10 minutes to go. We can't get complacent with the work that we've put in. We have to make sure we stay focused and keep our good form and keep pushing ourselves. Or maybe we've had an awesome day at work, but it's four o'clock and we still have another hour and we really got to push through and we got to stay focused, even though we're uncomfortable, we're tired and all that sort of thing. So what allowed you to stay focused and allowed you to execute at a high level, even when you were tired and uncomfortable. Yeah, I think some of that was prior experience, uh, good experiences, knowing that it's going to be difficult when I'm fatigued. I've been up for 34 hours or something. My body's depleted, all those kind of things. So I was able to anticipate that coming up to know that I've been through it before, but also realizing the stakes too, that, you know, I mean, I, mm. my family was behind me for sure, but worried about my safety, my climbing partners that had helped me out so much, uh, to get ready for that. Uh, and I just didn't want to blow it, uh, you know, towards the very end and, and trip and have an accident or something like that. So I felt like, you know, the closer I got to being back to base camp, back to safety, um, that the stakes were going up uh, because I was getting more exhausted mentally and physically. There's more potential for a slip up. So it's kind of like it, it's it's all riding on on finishing well with good form, right to the final, final move, right to the finish finish line. And I'd done a little martial arts and my martial arts teacher told me, you know, you don't you don't try and punch the target. You try and punch through the target. 
My uncle was a marathon runner and he said, don't run to the finish line, run past mm. the finish line. Just another way of maintain your good form all the way. And when I teach ice climbing to college students, same thing. I say, you may climb the difficult part and you can get a little complacent, but if you're not clipped into those anchors safely at the top, you are at a growing risk of a, of a problem if you slip because your protection is far below you. So good form all the way to the anchors. And that would be in this case, good form all the way to base camp. Uh, because you know, it, all that work's gonna be for naught if something goes wrong towards the end. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Before I ask the next question, remind me, what, what's your daughter's name? Jess, okay, because I'm, I'm bringing up the, when you guys had to wait so long to make the actual summit attempt, you were reading the letters that your, your family wrote you and you were reading the letter that your daughter brought you and it really brought you, brought you a lot of emotion, a lot of emotions came up from that. And one of the things that you wrote down in the book and in the, that you realized at the time was that patience is perseverance. It's passive perseverance because a lot of us go-getters or ambitious people, when things get tough, we think we got to push harder. We got to push harder. We got to go. We got to go. We got to go. Despite the weather being crappy, we're, we're going to push through it, right? But sometimes patience is actually the real perseverance. And I truly believe that one of the separators that is going to that that's going to allow people to be successful nowadays is being able to embrace delayed gratification because i think that is required for almost achieving goals so i kind of i just i kind of want you to just riff on that quote a little bit and and riff on how important that w was to you at the time and riff on how important it is for other people to realize that patience is true perseverance yeah, like you and, and maybe many of your listeners, I'm a go-go guy. High energy, do more, go faster, uh, get a lot in your day. And that, and that gets a lot of things done, but it doesn't work 100% of the time. And uh, in this case that you're describing, it was my second trip to Everest in 2017, hadn't summited yet. We'd gone up to camps one, two, and three on all our rotations. It's like day 55, we're, we're finally ready to make our final summit attempt, but the weather went bad. And I thought, well, that's fine. We'll have a few days of bad weather while we rest. We need three or four days of rest. Well, the weather went bad for three days, five days, seven days, nine days, 10 days, 10 miserable days of sleeping on the ice, cold. I've lost 20 pounds. I'm just completely emaciated compared to this fit person that left home six weeks earlier. And I frankly, I felt ready to give up. And you're right. I, that's when I pulled out one of my secret weapons, one of those letters from my family. And my daughter said, I'm sure you've suffered and there's more suffering to come. But if you can get through that, you'll get the chance to try for the top. And I'd seen this in small pieces before when there was a storm on the mountain. I used to say to the students, all storms end and this one will too. I don't know if it's three days, five days, seven days, but every storm ends and this will too. So let's not be stupid and march out into the storm just to prove that we're tough and go-getters. We're gonna stay here. We're gonna hunker down and be smart. We're gonna have good nutrition, good food and water. We're gonna get our equipment ready. And when the storm clears and it's ready to go, we'll go back out. But it was tough for me on day 10 and 11 to, to keep hanging in there. But I realized in this case, being perseverant was not doing more or faster or harder or longer. It was that patience. And in this case, patience is perseverance. It's passive perseverance. If we wait until the weather clears, we'll get our chance. And that can be really hard, but it's crucial sometimes. And, and I started writing the book the next Everest years ago, but it came to be true this last year with the pandemic. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can't force the virus to go away. You can't force society to get better. You can't force the medical society to come up with a vaccine quicker. 
we had to hunker down and wait. And now we're lucky enough to have the vaccine and, and know how to manage ourselves with social distancing. Now we can get back to work and fun. But when it was bad, we had to hunker down. And sometimes that really takes um, self-control and it takes leadership and it takes um, confidence in oneself that ah, this is difficult, but if I wait long enough and just don't let my guard down, I'll do everything I can while I'm locked in my house or stuffed in the tent, but soon the conditions will improve and I'll be ready to go again. I think sometimes that's the greatest wisdom of all for reaching our long-term goals. Yeah, I think like, like you said, you, you do everything you can and you don't necessarily force something stupid that could put you even further back. Because I think a lot of times if you have business goals and, and you want to get to a certain point, or if you have professional goals and you want to get promoted, if you feel like you're doing everything kind of that you can already, but you, but you still haven't seen that promotion come or you still haven't seen that business goal hit, sometimes you might force something that could, you know, hurt your reputation or that was just the wrong way. It wasn't, it's not the path that you should have gone down. Sometimes you just have to be patient and realize and you trust the process and trust that what you're doing is going to ultimately lead you there at some point. And so don't force something that might end up actually setting you back further. Right. And you gave some good examples. It's not just a matter of getting hurt by overtraining or getting lost in the storm on a mountain. It's you, if you're overdriven for that uh, business success, you might make a decision where you take advantage of somebody or do something without integrity right. or do something to harm your reputation or your company's reputation or get sued. Those aren't worth it. Those were all no. bad decisions. If you pressured yourself too much to hit that sales goal for the year that you cheated on a deal or ripped off one of your partners, those things are unacceptable. And so uh, those things are unacceptable. And so you, you need to make sure that you don't cross that line and harm yourself or those around you just because you're driven towards the goal. Maybe it's better to wait and try and reach that next year or five years from now. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I was really fascinated about in regards to like kind of a, a personal question towards you is you've been able to stay married with your wife, Gloria, for all, for all this time. And she's been able to allow you to go on these expeditions that are dangerous and, and have a lot of uncertainty. What are like two keys to y'all's relationship that has allowed it to continue to flourish and, and be good throughout all these different expeditions and throughout the difficult conversations that you have to have to bring up? Like, I want to do this thing. Like, what are a couple of keys that have allowed you to continue to have a good relationship through this? Yeah, thanks. We've been married over 31 years. Um, we've got two grown children. And it hasn't always been easy. You know, there's challenges in life. And when, when one of the spouses is a high-altitude climber, it brings in more challenges as well. I think a big thing is... Um, taking turns supporting each other. And mm. so like maybe I'm getting ready for Everest and Gloria knows that this year I'm going to be spending a lot of time training and studying details about the mountain and getting my equipment ready. And so this year may be a little bit more about me and that might not be uh, fair to her this year, but hopefully next year when she's trying to get that promotion at work or getting her next nursing degree, she's, a, she's an RN and she's been working in the COVID unit, uh, then it's going to be my turn to support her. And mm. I think we kind of give and take like that over the long term. And I think that's one crucial thing. And, and the other thing is realizing that as, you know, life partners or in other relationships, climbing partners, business partners, we're really trying to help each other make each other's dreams come true and do it in a good, uh, you know, uh, 
way with transparency and integrity and pride. And so sometimes I'm going to help my friends and sometimes they're going to help me. Again, it's that taking turns. If it's always about me, then my wife and friends might not be here in 10 years and mm -hmm. I don't blame them. So we've got to be willing to take turns in climbing when there's two people on a rope, one person leads first and they put in the equipment and the other person follows. And when the leader is taking the risk and doing the hard work, the follower or the belayer who's belaying and holding their rope, their job is totally to support that leader. Whatever that means. If it means standing in the rain or shouting instructions or taking four hours until that person finishes leading the pitch, that's what the belayer and the follower do. But later on, we switch it around. And so we take turns completely supporting one another when the risk is high and the rewards are potentially high. I think that's the biggest thing to a successful long-term climbing partnership, business partnership, life partnership. Yeah, I think that's awesome. I think that's awesome. Second to last question here, Jim. You know, one of the things that I think a lot of people asked you that you wrote down towards the end of the book is, when, you know, after you came back, everybody's like, what's next? What's the next big goal? What are you, do what are you doing next? And so I'm not necessarily going to ask you that specifically, but, and I don't know if you've come up with something since then that is kind of like your next goal, if you will, but how, do, how, do, how are you going to go about deciding what is next? Either maybe you already have, and if you have decided it, how did you come up with that as the next goal? Or if you haven't yet, what are, what are kind of the criteria that you're using to come up with that worthwhile goal for yourself? Yeah, even as I was descending Everest, we were about three hours from base camp, and I, and I knew we were going to be finished real soon. I kind of thought about that. It's like, wow, I've been dreaming of climbing this mountain for over 40 years, literally been training and working towards it uh, you know, for 34 years, and, and, and I finally made it. I asked myself a little bit then, what's next? And I thought, ah, I'll think about it later. But it unfolded slowly when I came back. As I described in the book, someone said to me, well, you know, you can't climb a bigger mountain than Everest, so what, you're going to quit climbing? You're all done? I'm like, no, there's, there's always going to be another challenge, another opportunity. It just might not be a mountain that has a greater elevation than Everest, but there'll always be a next Everest. And that's where the title came from. And I realized that one of the things I wanted to do, because I was, you know, my mid-50s, is to try and help young people and other people around me reach their goals. So that means, you know, supporting my wife and her goals, supporting my kids, but also people who are kind of in my orbit. Uh, when young climbers want to go on an expedition, uh, in 2019, my partner Rodney and I took some young climbers down to teach them how to do the expedition game because, eh, maybe now I'm getting to be 58, maybe I'm past my prime, but... I can pass on what I learned and make opportunities happen for others. I've loaned some equipment to two young climbers that are up in Alaska right now because you know what? That that's not that piece of equipment doesn't do any good sitting in my basement. Let's give it to the young guys and let them use it to try and make their dreams come through, uh, come true. So I'm kind of uh, using that opportunity to, to look for places to try and support others. And part of my next Everest is to share what I've learned. And so that's why mm. I spent so much time these last couple of years writing and polishing this book, The Next Everest. And I continue my public speaking for universities and associations and corporations to try and share what I learned at the, the outer perimeters of this adventurous life that'll hopefully help people get ready for their next challenge, their next Everest. Yeah, that's good stuff. That's good stuff. I like that. Well, before I ask the last question, Jim, I just want to acknowledge you for the, res for the resilience that you've had. I mean, so many times, like I, I did a one mile goal and I trained for 10 weeks. <laughs> you trained for 30 years for, for Everest. And so I've, the more I get older, the more I realize how special and unique it is when somebody kind of 
stays so focused on kind of one goal or one message or kind of one idea and their ability to stay so consistent with that over a long period of time. I think that is so, so rare that people are able to keep that kind of level of focus on on one idea or one, or one topic or kind of one goal. And I think that's what you've been able to been able to do for three plus decades. And, and now for you to give it back, that's just the ultimate um, the ultimate gift that you can give to people. Well, thanks. And and as I described in the book, when I got to the summit of Everest, there was no conquering any mountain. Nobody conquers any mountain. I'm just a little flea on the mountain's back. Um, but I felt really humbled and really grateful for all the people that have helped me along the way. My my climbing partners, my friends, uh, my parents when I was young, my, my wife and children now. Uh, I almost feel like the whole team worked. If it was football, we'd say like, you know, everybody worked really hard to get the ball down to the 99-yard line. And all I had to do was run it in that last yard. And that was both a source of strength for me and a security that I've got so many people behind me. I'm going to try and get this done and then get back home to them and help them with their goals. Um, and that's the thing. I, th- I think that's what I learned by surviving the earthquake and by summoning Everest is we just take turns uplifting each other through the good times and through the bad times. That's how we get through earthquakes. That's how we get through pandemics. Surge to the front and help when you can. Uplift others. And that's really what it's about in the long run is try and go as far as you can and help others go as far as they can in their journey. Mm, mm. Well, I, I acknowledge your humility as well. Um, well, I want to make sure everybody goes and supports you as you guys. I've already probably heard you're probably going to want to go, uh, get this book after having heard this, but it is such a, like, I feel like you, you can really, you really dive into the book. You do such a good job of graphically describing the book and, and really making the reader feel like they are there with you and, and able to see what is going on around you. And I think that's one of the coolest things because when you feel like you're there, that's when my heart rate would get elevated. That's when I'm like reading sentences super fast and flipping the pages super fast. And and, and that's what I love so much about this book. So you guys go get the next Everest uh, by Jim Davidson. Um, You can follow Jim on Facebook and on Instagram at resilience with climber Jim. Uh, You can follow him on Twitter at climber Jim there. Um, And you can go learn more at speakingofadventure.com. Is there any other place that people could go learn more and, and support you in your work? Uh, those are the best places. The, the website mentioned, speakingofadventure.com and the social media, because it's, it's just great to be able to talk to people like you and put messages out that hopefully can be of some value to somebody else. So thanks for the opportunity to be with you and your listeners. Yeah, of course. Of course. I'm glad we got to uh, run it back and make it happen again. Well, Jim, the last question, and, and I asked you this before, so I'm interested to see what you come up with this time. But I think that getting closer to the best version of yourself is both a constant journey. I don't think we're ever at that best version. But I also believe it's a unique journey. I believe that the way that I'm going to get closer to the best version of myself is going to be a little bit different than the way that you get closer to the best version of yourself. So for you personally, if there are three things that you could currently do or currently work on to get closer to that best Jim Davidson that you could possibly be, then what are those three things that you could currently do or currently work on? Uh, one would be listen carefully to others and look for opportunities to help them out, which is something I said was sort of part of my next efforts to, to literally seek those out. And when I think I can help out, put my shoulder behind somebody. Uh, the other is to try and uh, keep sharing the lessons that I have learned. I've been very fortunate and privileged to get this far, both in life and in business and climbing. So to appreciate that and uh, you know try and share uh, the lessons through the speaking and the writing I do to hopefully inspire somebody else up against their challenge. And also, as, as I get older and a little slower, is to try and age gracefully. I, uh, you know, people say, well, will you, will you quit climbing now? No, I, I'm, I'm a climber and a runner. I'll keep doing that until I can't even climb up the stairs anymore. But if I get to that point when I'm 88 years old, I can barely climb stairs. I hope I still try and do it with a little bit of grace 
and as best I can, even though it'll be incredibly slow and a very minor performance for me to climb up that tiny little hill. Hopefully I'll do it uh, with a little bit of grace and as best I can uh, just to honor the gifts I've been given. Awesome. Awesome. Well, three great things. It was uh, an honor and a thrill having you back on, Jim. Um, awesome stuff today. Appreciate it. Great being with you. And thanks for giving me the chance to talk to you and your listeners. Such an amazing follow-up interview with Jim. Be sure you guys share this episode with a friend or family member. Be sure you rate it and review it on iTunes and the Apple Podcast app because that's going to be one of the best ways that you can help support the show. And be sure that these amazing stories and lessons get in front of more people and in more people's ears. And if you're interested in having a daily, weekly, and monthly planner that gives you the confidence that you're always getting closer to the best version of yourself, then go to go.nickcarrier.com slash thebestjourneyplanner. Again, go.nickcarrier.com slash thebestjourneyplanner. Remember, like Jim's dad said, focus on the climb, not the drop. Remember to point out the uncertainties that are involved when taking on a risky situation, but also point out all the reasons why taking on those uncertainties is worth your while. And remember when taking on a challenge to find the appropriate balance of optimism and realism so that you believe in yourself and the rest of your teammates, colleagues, peers, or coworkers, and they believe in you as well. Because these are the things that are going to allow you to constantly get closer and closer to your best you.